I know it's We're, counterintuitive. A lot of our culture is about you figure it out. <laughs> but asking for help, especially when you are within a structure or organization or an ecosystem that's willing to provide it is point of strength for sure. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Sumeya Pinganan, product management leader at VMware and community creator on Clubhouse. Samaya inspires me not only with her life story, but her work and how she shows up in everything that she does. From building innovative products at VMware to deeply engaged and passionate communities on Clubhouse. Her resiliency, adaptability, and a recognition that nothing is ever easy or happens in a straight line to get there. There's hardships, but if you learn and to work your way through it, get the life and work lessons, whether you're building products or trying to start companies, you'll understand the power of resiliency, commitment, and have the ability to push through. So before we dive into Samaya's doing today, let's look back at how it all got started for her. Before VMware, I worked in the startup world for a little bit. Before the startup world, I also worked at other large companies such as Ernst & Young and General Electric. And I want to bring that up because what worked for me in large companies and what worked for me in smaller ones or in every other company was not necessarily the same. There are these values and systems that work, uh, let's say, for example, around persistence and commitment and clarity of communication, but then how they apply within each one of those different ecosystems or within a specific culture versus the other there is a lot of difference. And, you know, the, for example, the amount of risk I was able to take in a startup versus in a large company were different, the speed, all of those. So I wanted to just bring that up as something that, you know, I've been in VMware now for a year and a half, but, you know, I spent almost 18 years at these other places. So I was able to learn a lot. And I'm going to jump to VMware and then we can revisit the well, other. Well, this sort of just resonates yeah. massively with me at the moment, <laughs> right? Like I, here I am now back starting a venture studio, right? Uh, which is, you know, we're trying to do 100 companies in five years. It's a startup of trying to create startups, yeah. which feels just like crazy on top of crazy. Previously, you know, over the last sort of six or eight years, I've very much, I've been running more of a consulting business. You know, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to go back and do the venture studios because I missed the day-to-day -day building. You know, that was mm. one of the things that drew me back to uh, that practice. But everything you're saying just resonates massively. You know, the, the things that made me successful maybe or helped me in consulting world, a lot of it does not help me in startup world. Like it's very easy to sort of, you know, one of the classic traps you can fall into in that is, in consulting where you're coaching and guiding and helping people find the answers in a startup, sometimes you can coach and guide, but at some point, if decisions aren't being made, you have to expedite them in a way and be very <laughs> clear to say, no, this is what we're doing. Rather, yeah. where consulting is, can, can be, here's your four options. You know, maybe I think you should choose three. You know, yeah. so there's, there's all these like little nuances. I'm also getting back into the groove and recognizing it myself as you're sharing that. So yeah, no, I'm curious to hear what, what? you found, Simon. 
Well, one of the themes that came up a lot for me was, or, you know, that was a, an important part of one of my failures within the startup world was I didn't recognize the importance of the internal network and intelligence of the organization until I didn't have it. So for example, in a large company of any side, let's say VMware or GE or EY, you have experts in many different fields that you just call up and you're like, okay, we're trying to do this thing. What do you think? They give you their perspective. Yes, there is some bias built into it just based on the culture you're in, but it gives you more comfort around the certainty. You're just trying to build certainty around your hypothesis. And there are all these people who help you along with it. In a startup, you have to find all those people and spend time with them. And you're trying to do everything quickly. And so one of the things that I found that I struggled with because I didn't have that big network on the outside was I spent too much time doing that. And it just added drag to the process when there was another way to balance it by just building something quickly and sending it out there. So there are different ways of thinking that <laughs> don't translate. Well, it's just it's what you're saying translates massively at the moment. That's why I'm laughing. I'm like, it just reminds me of these things, you know, like, like you say, when you're in a company, you can turn around and you can ask someone in marketing, like, you know, we're, hey, we're doing a crowdfunding campaign. Oh, yeah, we've got five people who've ran those before, right? And yeah. versus in a startup, you're, we're looking around the room and there's like four or five of us and like, okay, who's an expert in this? I've sort of done a bit of that, a bit of this. Not, so we're all going to have to like learn this, you know, mm -hmm. and we're starting from like one or two and we need to be at like nine or ten. Mm -hmm. And you say like it, it takes time and you're, you're going to make mistakes right? Because you just don't know what you don't know. But it's just, you're making me smile because I'm, I'm living that at the moment, you know? <laughs> like, so it's uh, it's great, great to be sort of reminded that uh, not only is it normal, it's part of the process, but how to build it quickly is interesting in the community. Yeah. I think also mentally you should be okay. It feels hard to make mistakes that you know others have already figured out the answers oh, yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you just... Go make them. I mean, there is that analysis paralysis, which becomes so real and then taking action and just opt to be on the side of taking action whenever there is doubt. I'm with you on that. You know, I yeah. think that that, uh, that notion of bias for action is so important, or I'd mm -hmm. say learning by doing. And it goes a little bit back funny to the other point you were saying, right? Like there's so many options we have. There's so many right ways to do things. But at some point, Rather, you can spend all your time thinking of the options or you pick one, you commit to it and you try it and see mm -hmm. what works and what doesn't. It's funny because that pattern is helping myself. It's helping our team actually a lot because even our CEO, Mark, will always say there's many right answers. So which right answer are we going to pick and just give it a go? And I love that because it creates agency in the team and people will go and explore and manage mm -hmm. by fast feedback loops for high uncertainty and then mm -hmm. learn what works and what doesn't. So yeah, it's, it's really funny, actually. So yeah, thank you for reminding me of this. It's good therapy for me. I appreciate it. <laughs> I want to take it also to the other end, because the world we live in is also a world of nuance. Sometimes we make the same mistake over and over again. <laughs> And we don't really recognize it until we look at it in retrospect. So what do I mean by that? Like, 
I tend to have a pattern of not necessarily hiring the right people when it comes on the technical side. And (laughs) and then I've created the process where I talk to, like I have advisors who help me with it and I would do it right, you know, for a couple of months or three months or let's say two years. And then every now and then I would fall into the same, I would slide back into my earlier bad behavior of just talking to, let's say, the engineer and then just checking one reference and being like, that's great. Let's go for it. And I opt for the speed thing and just go for it. And then I regret it. Well, <laughs> for I, example. I, yeah, yeah, go for example. Yeah, go if you want. Well, I can give you my one of that too as well. Making my work visible is probably one of the things that it's always know how valuable it is, especially when you're in a startup or a large company, for people to know what you're working on and why. Mm-hmm either across your peer group, your team, your leadership team, whatever, mm-hmm. how powerful that is because the rest of the team can go, oh, right, Barry's got the PR campaign, Barry's got the company incubation process and Barry's got uh, whatever it is, right? And, mm-hmm. and so someone is like, ah, I don't have to put like, wake up in the middle of the night worrying about that. I can focus all my intention and effort into the two or three things that I'm working on, mm-hmm. you know? and making that visible. And you know, as many times I say that to myself, what happens then is when we get busy is that if you look at my desk now, my desk is like a sea of post-it notes, right? And post it's great for me, but nobody can see that. Nobody <laughs> knows that. They're yeah. not, right? And it's not that I want to go into Jira tickets, don't get me wrong, but like making the work visible is such a powerful thing to help people understand what's happening, to mm-hmm. let people know who's working on what, what they need to worry on, where they can help. But all these small little things. And I just find when I get busy, I just go into post-it note world in my desk. But the rest of the team, especially as we're distributed, it's invisible yeah. to them, you know? And look, I'm going to show you this because we're shooting it on thing. What does that post-it say? Can you read it? Use Actions Database. They're exactly, <laughs> right? Like I, I've got post-its to remind me. To do this, you know, so yeah, it's funny. It's funny these habits that we fall into. Yeah, it does. And I have not figured out a way to escape from some of these things. (laughs) It's just like being mindful that mindfulness thing and the truly mindfulness and intentionality. Yeah, um, no, it's huge. It is huge. How come they don't get easier? It's like, you get good at one thing and then you have another thing to pick up on. So it's a never done thing. Yeah, absolutely. I had spoke to this really interesting guy, Phil Nixon. Here's a fun backstory for you. Mm-hmm. He was the first head of IT for Apple. Can you imagine that? He was like, wow. my first boss was Steve Jobs and I ran the IT department from like, imagine how much he got shouted at, yeah. right? But in time, he sort of got more into much more like building teams and understanding behaviors. And his sort of passion has just sort of led him down that path, right? To the point where he is very interested in how the mind works, how we behave, and so forth. And a lot of the things he would sort of say in this space is that we have this sort of, we're programmed, just like software's programmed, just like we build highways. Our brain operates where things that are natural to us We create highways, basically, because that's the fast way for us to do things. And in these situations where we know 
something would be better, but we've built a highway. There's almost like a sunk cost fallacy in our modes of operation, right? It's yeah. uh, People would refer to this as the ability to adapt as like neuroplasticity, which we all can adapt. Just like mm-hmm. you were able to learn English. I've learned how to code and then forgot how to code, thankfully, you know, or whatever it was, you know, and all of these like little things we can reprogram, but it's energy. It takes a lot of energy, you know, and I think when we're under stress, and I certainly noticed this in speed, is that we want to stay on the highways, even though we know it might be not the right thing. And I think I've seen this a lot, even with Unlearn, like that was one of the core premises with Unlearn as well is how do you adapt your behavior intentionally, but it takes energy and it's hard, but you can get the breakthroughs like we've already described in the show, you know, some Mm -hmm. of the things we've both experienced and recognizing where our behavior is limiting us and why I have my use actions database posted stuck everywhere. And I'm still not using the actions database, you know, like what's going on, Barry, you wrote a note, do it. But you will, but you will. I'm pretty sure of it. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just a matter at this point of when. And I think that's like we uh, give ourselves a hard time about this stuff, too. And sometimes it doesn't help because it creates that negative energy around it. And also our brains like to stay away from anything negative or us as humans do. But then I think about the team as a whole. So beyond just me and the self-management aspect, there is the team part of it beyond just my ideas or the things I'm trying to work through or behaviors. And one of the things I love is the retro, the weekly retro, because it allows us all as a team to talk through what we've learned, what we struggled with. I know some people use the retros just as a way to talk about the sprint or how that went. But the way I use it within my team is way beyond that. We talk about everything that happened. This week was not a great week for me because I was late to two meetings. Or this week was a great week for me because I was able to organize my week around two outcomes and I got them all done. And those conversations, when they come up within teams, I think they make them stronger. They create awareness so that even you, when you forget something, there is that collective team memory that can help you remember sometimes. Yeah, no, it's almost like you're sort of reading my mind here, Samaya, you know, because <laughs> it's hilarious because if there was one practice that we have instituted in the startup, mm-hmm. it's retrospectives. It's the one thing, honestly, that whether like teams are working on sprints or they're doing ship it or they're doing whatever, like they're picking all sorts of processes. But the one thing every, whether you're in a management meeting or whether you're in a product development meeting or people are having retrospectives. And I think it's, as you say, I think they're the most powerful thing you can have because it's a very open space to talk about how we can get better mm-hmm. or where, where we're underperforming or, you know, where people actually have concerns to say, hey, I was late for that meeting. And maybe somebody will be like, you know, that wasn't a big deal for me. So, but someone's got it off their chest. And, you know, it's a, I found those to be the most interesting, especially as we're trying to build this process to launch 100 companies. I have never created anything like this in my entire life. I, I actually don't know anyone who's, it's like continuous delivery, but for companies. That's the, this is the <laughs> only way I can think about it. Like doing a thousand releases a month. I'm like, how do we create a thousand companies in a year? 
because we need to test a thousand ideas to get a hundred companies, right? Like that's, that's just the way it is, folks, you know? So it's fascinating, like trying to create that, right? And a lot of the things I thought would help us have turned out not to work. And the only way we've been able to surface those in a productive conversation is through retrospectives to say, hey, we thought we needed a business model canvas, a product prototype and wireframes to get through the concept stage of the process. Turns out we don't actually. No, we actually, we, we actually just need a high level idea of how, what direction we think the business is going to go in. And actually one or two mock-ups gives the team way more to drive conversation. So, you know, half the stuff I thought we needed, we didn't. Okay, great. Process just got better, faster, simpler. And I was wrong. So even, even more, let's go. What's the next thing I need to learn? I love uh, that. How many retros do you do? Is it per business team or startup team? Yeah. So at the moment, this is the kind of fun part, right? Like, yeah. and, and again, this is sort of one of these moments to this other transition from coaching to actually like being part of the teams or even better, just letting the teams manage themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. Because again, when you start off and people are struggling and they're, you know, when they're new, you have five or six people who've never met each other come together to form a team, yeah. you know, like there's nervousness, nobody wants to look silly. Nobody wants to look like they're uh, the team uh, sort of person that no one's going to like because they're just like too arrogant or something, right? So there's all those dynamics for people to feel each other out. And, you know, there's guidance we can give them to say, here's your roles, responsibilities, who's in charge of making these decisions and so forth, like to give them some frameworks. But everyone always struggles. Mm-hmm. And in a way, the struggle is part of the process, you know, mm-hmm. but, but what I invariably find is that it just takes some moment to like say, hey, maybe we should do a retrospective, right? And for some teams, they do it themselves. Like they just sort of say, oh, this isn't working. Let's do a retro. Some teams, you know, you can see when they need to do one. And it's, mm-hmm. I feel like there's a threshold. Like if it hasn't happened, then I need to step in and go, hey, we should do. So I'll get together and reflect here, right? Mm-hmm. But what you find is once they start that mechanism, a whole other level of performance just starts emerging from the team, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's safety to talk about what's not working. It's everyone's like, oh, I was feeling this. You were feeling that. That's great. We're, more of us are feeling it. Right. Let's fix it. And they're the teams that then just fly because they're self-managing. And then from you know perspective where I'm trying to run an incubation process, it's you don't want to manage. Like there's no way you're managing a thousand ideas to get through. <laughs> That's never going to work. But if you have teams that manage themselves, that's amazing. That's what you want. That's one of the definitely things I'm working on constantly. Is like, when do you step in? When do you step back? When do you help teams? Like, they don't need me there every day telling them what to do. They're super smart people. It's sort of like a very interesting dynamic to learn, but you see the signals. Who is self-managing? And right. uh, retros is a signal of that. A hundred percent. When I think back, for example, when I was a head of product at Remedy Health Media and, and, and I had to manage, you know, a large team and a lot of outcomes and I could only rely on signals. I think Retro was one of them. Actual, I would look at overall outcome data on a weekly basis. It was lagging, of course, but the better teams were the ones who, if things were going down, I already had an email in my mailbox talking about Things are not going well. We're challenged this week by X, Y, Z. But yeah, there are a few things that that you pick up on around not just the dedication or commitment or 
conscientiousness of, of a team, but also do they know when to ask for help? And those are usually the people who can do that early and often tend to do better. I know it's counterintuitive. A lot of our culture is about you figure it out. <laughs> but asking for help, especially when you are within a structure or organization or an ecosystem that's willing to provide it is point of strength for sure. Right on. It's all I can say to that, right? And it is so uh, counterintuitive is that mm. the teams that you feel most confident in are the ones that are on the front foot saying things aren't working. Here's, here's the challenge. Here's some ideas about how we might fix that. But they're open about those. You know, the teams I get worried about is when there's no communication or it's all good. You know, there's never any sort of any bad news. Again, it's sort of where people think like, oh, I need to show that I've got this managed, that there's no problems, that everything's good. It's okay to sort of surface things aren't working. Great. I expect them to be. You're doing hard work. It can't be that easy, right? And yeah, it's yeah. a great, great, great call out. There is another one also that comes up for me when we're talking about teams. So let's say everything is going great, which is fine. But then in, let's say, brainstorming meetings or even sprint planning or planning meetings, iteration planning, you don't see any idea conflict. You don't see any, any disagreement around one of the ideas, at least. When you see everyone agreeing and in harmony, there are usually two things that I look at. One, either people are not able to prepare in advance and think through things, and they're brought into these meetings that are really performative, where the person with the most power or authority gets to create the consensus based on their thoughts. That's one. Or the second one is that there are some unhealthy team dynamics that are created or are being carried out within the team that I need to look deeper into. But those are the two red flags for me. I think they're brilliant flags as well. Really great <laughs> signals. Yeah. It's funny, the, the preparing one is actually really, uh, that's another one that's actually just top of mind for me, right? And in a startup, this is sort of, when do you get to prepare? And you notice when people have prepared, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is really interesting because it's easy to fall into the trap that you only do the work when you're on the meeting time versus doing a little bit of work ahead of the meeting. So then the conversation in the meeting is much more uh, proactive around that dynamic you're saying. Like it's less like bringing everyone to the level of what are we going to talk about? It's let's debate the issue at hand and make mm -hmm. uh, hear contrary pieces of information to make a decision against. Mm -hmm. That's one that really is, uh, you know, I noticed that a lot in teams is like, are we ramping up when we arrive or are people ready when they arrive? Because it also then feeds the quality of the debate you can have. Because, and I've heard so many methods on this as well. Like, you know, at Amazon, you read the, the spend the first 10 minutes reading the press release beforehand or whatever it is for you. But it's, it re, I really noticed that a lot. So, it, it also is frustrating when it's not happening or if someone's doing it and others aren't. Yeah. This is the way I've been able to do it effectively. So oh, yeah, we, we, <laughs> we use XP methodology, which is not necessary to do this the way I'm doing it, but we use XP which, uh, or extreme programming, which encourages pairing. 
in everything you do. So you very rarely do you do things alone or solo, which means that when you're talking about, let's say, preparing for a brainstorming or for something important that requires like deep thinking or creative thinking, people break up into pairs and they go and do it. And so that creates that accountability forcing function that sometimes you need for people to do the work, but also allows you to bring different points of view that have been prepared for and thought about beforehand. So pairing really has worked very well. And the beauty of pairing is you don't necessarily always pair with the same person, especially when it comes to, you know, engineers. Uh, It's like you swap through. There is a schedule. So I love that idea. I love that too. You might not know who the very first guest of this podcast was ever. Ken Speck. It was Kent Beck. There you oh go. my so, God. Yeah, how cool is that? <laughs> That's They're amazing. Lovely. Yeah, yeah, no, he's a cool dude. Really nice guy. But I'm with you, you know, like that was my first introduction to Agile, this extreme programming and got it, it like and pairing as well. It's just uh, such a, a powerful technique, right? Like two heads are always better than one. Switching the heads regularly is even better, as you say, like uh, moving the, the conversation around. It's a great way to build team as well. So yeah, no, awesome, awesome tips. I've got to ask you then, you're obviously doing amazing work within VMware, but I think there's other things that you're doing as well that I I just think are outstanding at the moment because not only are you here sharing your fantastic knowledge uh, with us on on, how you're building high-performance teams, but you're doing it with the community and you're doing it on Clubhouse in a way that I, I haven't really seen anyone else really do it so well, which is... You know, you do everything from host sort of ask me anything where you invite people to come and share their challenges and and, you know, you're giving knowledge, amazing people that you bring along to share their knowledge to as well. You've created what I can see is a really special and safe space where people from every sort from startups to entre- entrepreneurs to product leaders to tech people are are all just coming to these events that you're running and they're they're fabulous. So. Tell us a little bit about what's inspired you or how you even got started and what are some of the things you're getting from it that you're, you're giving a lot. So I'm, I'm just curious for some of your insight there. Sure, absolutely. Part of it is selfish. <laughs> and Nothing it comes- wrong with that. Like I said, you're giving a lot. <laughs> I, I, that's what I see, you give a lot. So it started really from a place where you know, my VMware role is my first, you can say, Silicon Valley role. And I've always been learning from people in that world. Whatever company I was at, whatever I was doing, you know, I, I was li- I've been always living between New York City and Washington, D.C., or let's say Northern Virginia. And I didn't feel like there was that depth of knowledge or community that I could plug into. And so I relied for many years on conferences and podcasts and reading books. And and that was the world I was learning from and then trying to execute and do better. And along the way, yes, I've met some amazing mentors, but never enough to quench that thirst for, you know, to be part of that community. And I could, you know, I could ask myself the question of why didn't I just go there and be there? But of course, everyone's personal situations are different. Mm -hmm. And so Clubhouse allowed me not only to 
do more of that for myself, but also to open up the world to others who are in my situation. Because the people who are in Silicon Valley are few, I mean, compared to the rest of the world. And so how do you exponentially share that knowledge? How do you create community for everyone so they feel like they're truly part of the startup culture or the successful tech culture? I think there is like this perception that anything not there is not necessarily as successful. And I don't believe that's true, but I do believe that it's a perception and sometimes perception becomes reality and self-reinforcing. And so that's where I've come from, from day one. And I have found that there is, at least on Clubhouse, there is this solidarity and beautiful, positive community, regardless of where people are located or who they work for, that just wants to help each other and share their knowledge. And I just tapped into that. So. I also think you're creating that is my observation, right? Like I've been in your rooms and seen seen you at work and my word, it's amazing how you invite people into that conversation because I, I absolutely agree with a lot of the assumptions you're sharing, right? Like I lived in London and have moved to San Francisco for the last six years, partly because of what you have described, right? Like I was like, oh, I need, need to go spend some time there, you know, and and now I'm sort of like, a lot of it has been demystified for me, you know, like, yeah, sure, there's some nuances about just the system here. And there's a, you know, like a a lot of the big companies are here and their venture money is here. But if anything, I think COVID has just made people realize like the future is not just in one place. It's, It's a global future, right? And like, we're moving to Asia. I've never been more excited in my life to like, go to Asia, because guess what? Where do you think all the magic's happening, folks? I'm going there, right? And uh, that's that's my disposition. I love to travel. But, you know, but again, like what you're creating and what I've seen and observed and one of the the founding principles of nobody as well is that we have a global perspective. We're crowd first, we're people first and talent is everywhere. There is some amazing talent out there. It's not all based in, in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is just very, very good at at creating a megaphone in a way to sort of feed the cycle that it's it's all here. But I think Clubhouse in in many ways is sort of demystifying that for a lot of people, and especially, you know, the the conversations I hear and see you having and many others there shows that innovation is 24-7. It's all over the globe. It doesn't doesn't only start at 9 9 PST. You know, like, I think it's uh, really fascinating. So Tell us more like about how you've sort of managed to keep building that or, or what inspires you? Because you're, I say you give a huge amount to this, but you're, as you say, and it's not, I don't think it's selfish. You give stuff, great stuff comes back, you know, and you're obviously making the most of it. So share us a little bit more, you know, some what, what you're taking away from those experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So I think founded within my core knowledge, which is really around around software and building software and building teams that build software. There are a ton of other things that influence that world and also within it that are changing. You know, we have new technology, we have new ways of doing things. Research are coming out every day. There are biases we need to undo. There are personal skills we need to improve on. And so there is never a shortage of relevant conversation or learning that I've had that I can share or things I want to learn 
that I love doing within the public square, so to speak, or public stage on Clubhouse. And so a lot of those conversations start there. Sometimes I'm tempted to think through, oh, what does a life cycle or a maturity thing look like? But I have stopped myself from doing that, that the consultant, you know, that was in me would love to do that. But now I'm really focused on, I get a lot of DMs from people asking for specific topics they want to hear about on the different stages or rooms we have every day. We hear about questions that keep repeating themselves. So there is a pattern there. And so there are all these areas where essentially I'm crowdsourcing conversation topics and ideas that can be helpful to people. So it comes back to them. And then even within my work. So I, I, for example, I, I picked up this new product that I'm working on around experimentation and statistical, specifically statistical experimentation. And so I'm trying to learn more. And I've done a couple of rooms where I talk to people who have figured it out and I'm For example, that part, I couldn't have done it without Clubhouse because in the past I would, let's say, DM people on LinkedIn, I wouldn't hear back. But now it's, there is this platform that's really attractive. People want to share at scale and I'm able to harness that and benefit myself and others. Well, it's just, it's fabulous, right? Like what I love here is how you're applying your, all your skills, your product thinking, all your sort of notions here. The crowdsourcing piece is just so personal to my own heart, right? Like, like the crowd will tell us what they want if we listen, right? Or yeah. if we create a, a mechanism that if they share, then they see what they ask for appear. And then that brings them to the conversation and you've got a flywheel going, right? Yeah. And I'm just applauding here. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fan from the sideline going, I just really enjoy the way you're doing this. And I love the way... Even as you said, going back to when you started on this path, the way you had to learn before was in was in maybe in a book or maybe in a, listening to a podcast, which is often a one way conversation, mm-hmm. right? It's hard for you to test the assumption where you're like, "Hang on, I just read this line. What mm-hmm. did you mean?" Mm-hmm. And yet, the conversation creates that sort of Socratic debate on things, or where, where there is the one of the things you mentioned as well to look for in teams, like there's a back and forth. There's a, this is what I think. Is that what you meant? Is this my, I can test my understanding of what I just heard. Is that, is that correct? Or I just think they're, they're fabulous mechanisms and the way that you're applying product thinking to it. I just, you know, more applauding for you. I think it's uh, <laughs> Can't so be what, helped. It can't yeah, be well, helped. What, you, can, <laughs> you can take the PM out of software, but you can't take the, P, you know, like basically the management side of it out of their mind for sure. Yeah, I love it. So looking forward, you know, so what are some of these fun topics that you're now sort of looking forward to diving into? Like you've mentioned the statistics and, and applying that in your product, but what are the things that are top of mind for you or you're most excited about as you look ahead? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, obviously within VMware, we are a company at scale. And so one of the things I continue wanting to go back to and, and working on is making that jump from, you know, you have achieved product market fit and then that really awkward stage, super painful that happens next that, and then you start going to scale. So a lot of people go from product market fit to scale, but there is really this canyon in between that has a lot of pain associated with it. And I want to do more there and do 
you know, a little more thought leadership there, learn more, like bring people to talk about it because you can plan all you want for scaling, but there is this execution piece. Part of what you do is experiment, whether it's hiring people or building systems that help you scale, that then gets you to that point of scale. So that's where I'm at right now. Well, I tell you what, if you want someone to share a thousand stories of what didn't work and didn't work, I think that's uh, Nobi Studios is going to be a well of stories to share. So maybe that's a fun thing we can do in the next few months ahead is run a, another clubhouse room and I'll tell yes. you where all the, tell you about all the, the bodies and where they all are and uh, <laughs> how much uh, we thought we knew or, and what it actually turned out to be, how different it was. It's fabulous. I love it. Yeah, well, look, it's just been fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you for, again, you so openly share your knowledge and your stories and your insight. It's it's really inspiring. Um, you know, I love what you're doing with Clubhouse. Please keep doing it. Please keep building the community. SMA, it's been fantastic to have it on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you, Barry. And thank you for doing all you do as well.